Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green. This is a post-debate interview with Justin Schieber, founder and co-host of Relay Theology. If you haven't seen the debate on capturing Christianity between Justin Schieber and Eric Hernandez, I would highly recommend watching that debate before listening to this. After the debate, we went back to the hotel, had a few drinks, and recorded this. That might become more obvious as the episode progresses. This was a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it. We're here with Justin Schieber, Real Atheology After Dark. Hi, guys. This is right after the debate. The undisputed champion of the debate against Eric Hernandez, teen pop sensation Justin (laughs) Schieber. Um, Deep cut. (laughs) For those who don't know, uh, that's how he was introduced on Reasonable Doubts. When was that podcast even on the air, so to speak? Uh, I mean, they were on for a number of years before I joined the the wagon party. Yeah, um, and Justin Bieber was a teen back then, so that's that's how you know it's old. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah I, he had far less tattoos. He had far less tattoos, and he wasn't a Christian apologist back then. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, when I joined in, I want to say, like, early 2011... And then I like it only went for a few years after that. So do you want to go through Eric's Eric Hernandez's case first, or do you want to maybe rehash your own case that you gave during the debate? Uh, I don't know. Do you have a preference? I kind of want to go into criticizing Eric right away. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, so Eric's case, uh, I guess his first argument you could interpret as a kind of uh, rhetorical like. Because, you know, the problem of evil, right, is largely considered, you know, one of the biggest uh, arguments for atheism. And so what Eric wants to do is he wants to kind of like, you know. Oh, evil is actually evidence for God, if you think about it. So he's presenting a moral argument for the existence of God. But rather than saying moral value and obligations are required for God, he specifically focuses on evil. But then evil is just a word he uses for moral value and obligations. If God doesn't exist, then there's, like, no objective morality. Yeah, obviously. Um, so if you try to make the argument from evil, you're implicitly assuming there's objective morality. And, um, you know, and that proves God. So, I mean, isn't that, like, basically, like, the kind of Frank Turk thing he's doing there? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, um, it's like, you know, if, if someone's going to object to Star Wars and identify a plot hole, they better be believing in the Force, or I don't want to hear <laughs> yeah. a damn word they say. <laughs> You're sitting on Luke Skywalker's lap to slap him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he had... Okay, so there's one really uh, interesting thing he said about this, which is, like, that it requires not only, like, an objective standard, but also teleology, which is, like, not a normal part of that argument. Yeah, I didn't understand that. Um, So in this debate, we had traded back our um, opening statements, like, Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and then a week or so later, we, we traded rebuttals. And when he gave me this opening statement, I was admittedly as confused as you were, just because, like you said, teleology is typically not a part of the defense of the premise, or, you know, the, the, the claim that, uh, you know, if evil or moral value exists, then God exists. It, you, you don't really ever hear that being brought up in the defense of such a claim. Usually, they're just... What's, def- what's brought in defense of that claim is a bunch of quotes 
from atheists who who are air Michael theorists. Michael Ruse, Alex Rosenberg, right, right, <laughs> the usual the, suspect. Yeah, the the three musketeers. So. <laughs> Uh, typically that's how it goes. And so, yeah, I was genuinely confused. I was like, why does he, because clearly some metaethical views adopt kind of a teleology, but it's, you know, that's obviously not the case for all of them. So why is this claim being made? That was a a confusion of mine. I mean, the problem, I mean, I guess we'll just briefly go through the moral argument, even though I feel like Shelley Kagan, you know, like that debate with William Lane Craig, like that is one of the rare debates where it's like Craig unambiguously lost that debate because Craig, I mean, this is an unpopular opinion for an atheist, but like Craig usually wins his debates. Oh, like yeah, he's a really absolutely. good debater. It's a, it's yeah. a uh, it's only denied by those suppressing the truth. I think. Yeah, resistant non-believers. I would say. Yeah. Um, and Craig. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, the Shelley Kagan one. It's like he like he just destroyed that moral argument forever, and it honestly bothers me that Craig just keeps defending it after that. Right. And like he's even admitted it. He's like, look. People like this argument. He's like, people really... I'm just going to keep doing it. I got to play the hits, baby. (laughs) Um, But, like, it is... It's such, like, a bad argument. Um, But, yeah, I mean, so, first of all, there's, uh, you know, coherent, uh, non-theistic ways of having objective morality. You know, there's moral non-naturalism, you know, as defended by, like, Russ Schaefer-Landau, who's someone who's mentioned tonight. And, um, you know, moral naturalism, yeah, yeah. there's, it's like, there are ways of fleshing this out and like apologists pretty much invariably never actually even address the existence yeah. of those, of those things, let alone like try to and, you like, know, debunk them in any way. Right. And, and certainly there are some arguments that could be taken seriously that are more to the effect of these accounts, uh, say theistic accounts of morality have some advantages over non-theistic views. Um, perhaps epistemologic uh, advantages, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to claim that it's just impossible. <laughs> like, yeah, just I say, like, it's like inconsistent with atheism. <laughs> yeah, like it's just, you can't say those two things at the same time or your your head will explode, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's it's totally not a claim it's taken seriously or really even addressed very often in yeah. meta-ethical literature. It's exclusively something you would get if you read apologetics and nothing else ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's like there are these systems of objective morality that theists adopt, non-theists adopt, and it's like it just has no reference to God. Like, right. it, so like if I were a theist, if I was presented with like the Euthyphro dilemma, like is it good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's good? It's like, well, God commands it because it's good. The end. And it's just like, oh well, wait a minute, doesn't that mean he's superfluous? I'm like, yes. Okay, like what? What yeah. do you want from me? Like, it, he also doesn't command that two and two equal four. Like, there are just certain necessary truths that he doesn't have anything to do with. Like you were alluding to, maybe there's an argument about, like, the epistemic connection. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe uh, the fact that our moral intuitions happen to track moral truth, like, maybe that can be utilized in an argument for God. Like, Dustin Crummett and Philip Swenson's argument for moral knowledge. But that's, like, totally separate from, like, the argument that Eric made, where it's, like... You just can't have right and wrong in <laughs> any kind this. of object. Yeah, like this. <laughs> so, I mean, the first problem is that there are these totally intelligible, well-subscribed meta-ethical systems that say that uh, morality is objective. And taken very seriously by, by meta-ethical philosophers. Like, it's just when your argument relies on the logical impossibility of certain <laughs> views that exist, then that's perhaps <laughs> a time to revisit your case. But there's another point that you harped on about, uh, you know, the moral argument a bit, which is just like, 
it's not at all obvious that God gets you to objective morality. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, there are, yeah, like there are uh, non-theistic ways of talking about objective morality that are accepted by plenty of theists, by the way. It's not even like, oh, it's just an ad hoc thing made up by the- by atheists or something. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's like, it's not even obvious that God gets you objective morality, even though it's often just kind of assumed that like, oh, well, obviously if there's right. God, there's objective morality. But you just kind of straightforwardly said, hey, if these morals are based on a subject, like a person, mm-hmm. then that's subjectivism. Like that's right. just a weird form of subjectivism. And um, I didn't. I wasn't really satisfied with the responses to this that I heard. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I wasn't. So yeah, the, the the core of his claim there is one teleology, right? Which we've discussed. It's not really something that's. It's not even the typical defense employed for this premise. Yeah, and the other, he says that you know the the authority of morality and the uh, prescri- the, the prescriptivity that these are the features that uh, that require or presuppose his particular view of God and morality. And so, yeah, I like, I, I, uh, mentioned, you know, Mackey's point about how, uh, you know, you can only really say that someone is obligated to obey another person about X only if, uh, there's a general obligation that you need to obey that person about that. Um, and so, Essentially, there's there's no non-circular way to say that uh, our obligations uh, are going to be grounded in God's saying that we need to do something. You can just ask, like, but why should I obey God? Right. <laughs> like, there has to be some fact, like some abstract yeah. fact that just you says, might, oh, you, you should say always obey God. That uh, God's commands are irreducibly normative. <laughs> well, <laughs> There's some might. irreducibly normative truth that you should obey God. Right. <laughs> <or> something. <laughs> um, there was one question during the Q&A that I thought was kind of interesting where the guy said, well, look, you know, you're saying that divine command theory is a form of subjectivism yeah. because it's based on a subject. Like it sort of comes from a subject. Mm-hmm. So Grounded wouldn't, in, yeah. yeah, like wouldn't that kind of imply that everything is subjective and there's no objective reality for a theist on any subject because we think everything comes from God. God created everything. Right, right. And, you know, I feel like I, those are different kinds of, relations that he's trying to yeah unpack there but what he ended up saying is that like god well i guess i don't under i don't you know what emerson i don't know what he was saying <laughs> well, i feel like he was using subjective in like a, a way that like meta ethics philosophers wouldn't care about like subjectivism is not really the view that like Oh, it somehow involves subjects. Mm-hmm. Like that's not what subjectivism means in metaethics. It's like a very specific kind of relation where it's like, so right and wrong constitutively depend on subjects where it's like yeah. what it means for something to be right or wrong just is like the approval or disapproval of subjects. Right. And like, that's a very specific way of grounding right and wrong. And it's not just like any old relation to a subject means that it's subjective in the relevant sense in the relevant meta-ethical sense. So, you know, you pointed out like, well, this table is like independent of God, I think. Like, you know, even right. if... God is of, causally prior to it, perhaps. Yeah, maybe God created all this stuff, but like, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't really a bad question. It, it, it just relied on this kind of overly expansive idea of what subjective means. Yeah. And it's like, no, subjectivism in meta-ethics, it's this very specific kind of thing constitutive dependence where 
what it is for something to be right or wrong is just approval or disapproval right, of right. subjects. And so when I interpreted him as saying that, like, reality constitutively depends upon God's nature. It makes no sense. I was like, like, okay, yeah. is this idealism that he's asking about? Because yeah, it, it yeah. seemed to be like that was what he was uh, moving toward, but I, I don't know. It was, it was a little unclear. Okay, so, yeah, so the moral argument. First of all, there are um, ways to get objective morality. Um, as an atheist. Second of all, it's not obvious that God gets you objective morality because it's just a weird form of subjectivism. And then also just this point about teleology was so weird to me, like this added thing. Um, John Buck, our producer over there, actually uh, asked an interesting question where he was like... Hey, John, turn up my headphones. (laughs) Jamie, can you look this up for me real quick? Um, (laughs) Yeah, he was like, couldn't you be like Aristotle? Uh, you know, because like Eric made explicit reference to you final can't causes. Be Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> Can I be Don't Aristotle? Don't even think about it. Because <laughs> um, Eric's talking about final causes, you know. And then um, John is like, well, couldn't you just conceptualize final causes the way the guy who coined that term did? <laughs> Which is like, you know, there are final causes, but they didn't like come from God in the way that you're talking about. Because Aristotle believed in God or gods and also believed in teleology, but didn't think of it the way that like contemporary theists think about it, where God is like giving things teleology in the way that, that Eric was implying. Right. And it's like, yeah, Aristotle himself believed in teleology and God and didn't think that teleology came from God in the way that you did. So like, it, you know, so you talked about natural teleology, you know, like as it's believed by Thomas Nagel or something like, so What's wrong with that? And then I don't think Eric knew what you were talking about. And he just kind of like deflected a little bit and then like sort of came back to it. And I think, I mean, my own opinion is just that he didn't know what you were talking about. Yeah. I I, I don't know. It, it, it may be that he was confused by the question, but uh, certainly if he's going to be using that argument in defense of that main core premise of the moral argument, um, he should have had something to say perhaps about <laughs> that kind of response. So the next argument was, so first he appealed to evil, which deductively proves that God exists. And then the second data point was knowledge and rationality. So do you want to explain uh, what his argument was? Yeah. So uh, the rationality portion of that argument was the claim that because I am a compatibilist, well, his his point essentially is that if determinism is true, which he assumes is true if if atheism is true, uh, if determinism is true, then it follows that any decision, belief, any possible cognizing of any sort is determined and cannot thereby be rational. And I just gave the rather, I think, pretty obvious counterexample that computers are like the the archetypal example of a determined yet rational process. Um, and so there's nothing incompatible about those. And yeah, his second argument, uh, or the knowledge argument rather, was was essentially... Oh, and just a side point, like you mentioned during yeah. your statement. Um, okay, so you might say, well, computers were designed. Yes. And it's like, yes. okay, yes, they were designed, but that was not the point. The point right. was that like, rationality and determinism are actually compatible. Yeah. Pointing out the design, the fact that computers are designed is dialectically irrelevant when the point I'm responding to is, is the, uh, the incompatibility claim. Um, but yeah, the other argument, the knowledge argument was essentially, um, an interesting version of like the, of Alvin Plantinga's 
evolutionary argument against naturalism. Um, An interesting version of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you the for the first time someone hears that argument, they think it's obviously false because true beliefs are, are obviously going to be more adaptive. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's essentially the argument he gave, or the, the argument that that response would apply to, right? He gave, like, the... Uh, the I, I hate to say it, but like the most surface level reading of that argument. And I think that the vast majority of responses to the evolutionary argument against naturalism, at least like the ones that are like off the cuff, like the ones that people hear for the, you know, they hear that argument for the first time, this is where they jump to as an objection. Most of those objections are, I think, wrongheaded. Planning is pointing to a much deeper problem about the, about the content of beliefs and the, the way that that's connected with the... Uh, you know, the behavior, because that's what natural selection uh, selects for is behavior. Um, so long as your body parts are in the right area to secure the resources, to survive, to reproduce, that's all that matters on naturalism or on, you know, uh, natural selection. Um, and so planning is making this like really interesting claim. And it's a claim uh, that is a part of an argument that is that has spewed 20 to 30 years worth of a rich literature that's fascinating and touches on a lot of interesting, interesting questions. But the version he presented was one that, that, that can simply be responded to by saying, well, true beliefs are obviously more adaptive. <laughs> like, that's, that's what's so, that was really confusing to me. So in my, in my response, um, I responded to his, uh, his rather, uh, surface level interpretation of, of, uh, planning. A, and then I like did what I thought was a relatively fair reading of what planning was actually saying, like the real deep problem that he thinks exists on a uh, naturalistic view. And then I responded to that, uh, with, you know, some arguments that are, I, I find compelling in the literature. Um, and Never was this addressed like like this, like if this I don't know, I just it seemed to me like the argument sounds really powerful when you're dealing with someone who's not familiar with the actual complexity of the argument. Um, If you're talking to a guy who's a brand new atheist and you're like, ah, but you're but naturalism, naturalism, you know, uh, it only selects for for. for behavior, not true belief. And so I can identify a bunch of beliefs that can be uh, adaptive and yet false. And therefore, you don't get to call your belief in naturalism knowledge, or you can't justify it. You have a defeater for it. Um, okay, you know, that's that's cool. But like, that's literally the lowest possible version of that kind of argument. And so I, I just found that surprising. Um, is there anything else you want to say about that argument? Like that you, cause you did address, like, like you said, you, you addressed Eric's argument and you said, maybe, you know, what he's getting at is like, you like ultra steel man, the argument where you like, get, you addressed a version of the argument that he didn't make your, your yeah. ending statement did get cut a little short. Is there anything else you wanted to say about that argument? Yeah. So there is, um, so the way in which I responded to it was, as you said, I responded to his initial kind of surface level interpretation of the argument. And then I said, but planning is saying something way more interesting over here. Let me tackle that. Um, and so then, um, I mean, you have various, I mean, like I was saying, the literature on this is, is vast and I'm sure there's going to be objections to what I'm saying here, but 
it's at least interacting with the literature where you're saying um, you could say, okay, well, on certain views, uh, say like non-reductive views of like physicalism or, or what have you, you're going to have um, belief content that when paired with certain desires is going to lead to some behavior rather than another type of behavior. So it's going to lead to specific behavior, right? And insofar as that behavior is adaptive, that that content is going to kind of latch on to the to the outside to the real world essentially. And so there is a sense in which uh, natural selective pressures uh, do bear on uh, the content of beliefs. That's a very obviously quick run through that idea, but. One of the other uh, responses that I give to the evolutionary argument against naturalism that comes up later in the debate, in the debate uh, I gave that was inspired by um, Oppie. He, he does this objection. It's like his go-to. Um, so Oppie makes this interesting observation that if we talk about, if, if we limit uh, R, which is in the argument, it's talking about the reliability of our cognitive faculties. If we limit the if we limit that to talking specifically about our metaphysical beliefs, mm-hmm. then we can ask the question, okay, well, how, you know, what is the data on the ground when it comes to metaphysical beliefs? Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like there's just vast disagreement among persons, um, among like your, just your regular everyday people. There's vast disagreement among professional thinkers on these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so Oppie says that, hey, look, at least with regard to our uh, metaphysical beliefs, it's quite obvious that uh, that R is low, that the reliability of our, metaph- of our uh, cognitive faculties to produce true me- uh, metaphysical beliefs is, is actually going to be uh, pretty low. So, you know, when we, when we establish that empirical claim, um, then he's going to say, okay, well, the probability of R is low. The vast majority of our supernatural beliefs or metaphysical beliefs held by most people are, um, have, that have ever lived are false. Um, but then you can say, okay, well, the, what's the probability of reliability of those uh, metaphysical beliefs and in conjunction with, with theism? Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to necessarily be either equal to or less. Right, because you're adding a claim to the initial R, right? So you're saying R and theism, we've already said R is low, so R and theism is going to be low. It's going to be equal to or lower than that original R. But then you can say, okay, well, if that's the case, then given that the probability of R and T is very low, but then Eric, of course, wants to say that the probability of our reliability of our metaphysical beliefs on theism is very high. And if we do that, then it follows that the probability of theism is very low, if that makes sense. So you kind of start with that empirical claim. You join it with theism. It cannot be more probable than the already low empirical claim. And then when you take the fact that Eric wants to presumably argue that the probability of our reliable um, metaphysical beliefs is high on theism, then it follows necessarily that the probability of theism is very low. So that's Oppie's kind of go-to objection to the, to the evolutionary argument against naturalism. Yeah, I, I also wonder if there's like an understated evidence point to be made there where it's mm. like, oh, well, 
under theism, you might say, well, we have these, you know, reliable faculties. We have, like, we do in fact have reliable faculties. We do in fact have knowledge. Mm -hmm. And you say like, okay, well, let's look at our metaphysical beliefs. Like if theism were true, would you really expect us to be as unreliable as we are? Yes, exactly. Exactly. There's some general fact of like, oh, we have knowledge. We have, you know, like we're, we're not totally like we do, we we are tracking the truth. Mm -hmm. And you say like, but we're, we're subject to cognitive biases. You know, yep. we, we like make all these mistakes. There are all these problems with our yeah. faculties. And it's like, why would you expect that on theism? And, you know, yeah. you go back to the fall, right? right. <laughs> Eric's going to posit the fall here. And he's going he's gonna to talk about the noetic effects of sin, right? As planning it does. But the noetic, the noetic effects of sin is just a vague concept that says like okay well it affects all parts of the person and so it's going to affect your 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 cognitive capacities as well um but that doesn't really give us any predictive claim about how those are going to consistently fail and how they are going to be reliable right like there's clear distinctions to be made here and it seems as though the kind of explanations that a a natural selection kind of explanation an evolutionary explanation for the kinds of beliefs we would expect is going to be far more satisfying because it's actually going to have some predictive value here. It's a predictive power with regard to the ways in which we consistently fail um, versus the ways that we are generally reliable, right? We we would expect that we're going to be generally reliable when it comes to medium-sized objects that we can interact with all day long. But metaphysical beliefs, of course, why would we expect we would be uh, reliable on that? On theism, you'd expect our metaphysical beliefs to be very powerful. In fact, those are more important than the everyday middle-sized objects belief. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Like, there can be, like, we can get a story from, like, evolutionary psychology of, like, okay, we seem to be very reliable in this area where it seems to have some adaptive value, and we seem to be very unreliable in this other area that doesn't have adaptive value. But if you're just, so if you're explaining it evolutionarily, that makes perfect sense. But if you're explaining it through the the noetic effects of sin, you know, through the fall, then it's like... A broad, undifferentiated claim that makes no real content to it. No, yeah, and it's like, it also wouldn't lead you to expect reliability and unreliability to track very specifically yeah. with the predictions of evolutionary biology. It's like, that's a huge coincidence. Yeah. You know, like, no, it should be affecting everything across the board, right? Right. Yeah, that, that that's a good point. If we could move on to the third point here of the soul, the soul oh, as yeah. evidence. So, so as you may imagine, this is the part that made me the most frustrated <laughs> other than the first part about like, oh, well, you know, stuff is right and wrong. So I guess God exists. And right. then this is the, the other part where I'm just like, I can't even like if you put a gun to my head, I could not steal man this kind of argument <laughs> where it's just like, OK, well, if atheism, then there are no souls. What is the connection between those things? Like, I don't understand. Like, um, yeah. And then he said, okay, so if atheism, there are no souls. And then if there's no soul, then there's no consciousness. Yeah. So there's, 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 <laughs> there's three moves being made here. There's, well. All of them supremely rational. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. The claim, the, 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 the broad, the 70,000 foot claim here is that, that souls are evidence for theism. Mm-hmm. Um, 
maybe maybe you're right. I don't remember the exact wording here, but uh, it may be that he's making a deductive claim that like souls are impossible on theism. Like, don't even think about having a soul. <laughs> I mean, all of his arguments sounded kind of deductive. Like, it right. sounded like he wasn't leaving any room where he was like, "Look, this is inconsistent with atheism." Yes, right, yeah. right. Now, it's important to under- to note that if there is no God, there can be no final causes to life in the natural world. There can only be efficient causes. In other words, if there's no God, then we can't say that we are evolving for the sake of something, because on atheism, our existence cannot be explained or derived from an objective final cause or teleological standard as if we exist for some objective goal or purpose, but rather can and must be explained purely in terms of efficient causes and not final causes. Hence, if there is no God, then there is no teleology to life in the natural world by default. Hence, my argument that if atheists like Justin have used their knowledge and rationality to become atheists, then knowledge and rationality exist, and therefore, atheism is false. And once again, if atheism is false, then theism is true, and God does exist. Now, even if Justin could overcome this problem, which I don't think is possible, consciousness and free will, which ontologically require a soul to ground them, must exist, and thus, given my arguments, it would follow that atheism is false, and God does exist. Um, And so, the claims that he brings in defense of the existence of a soul and therefore the existence of God um, are one consciousness and two free will. Um, Without those two things, you don't get a soul. And uh, obviously a a soul exists because we have consciousness and free will. And so obviously we have a soul and so God exists. Mm -hmm. That's um, kind of a uh, rundown quick version. Um, But yeah. yeah. So, so literally everything other than substance dualism can't explain consciousness. Um, that's pr- that's the second premise of the yes. argument. So, like, uh, property dualism, no. Uh, panpsychism, no. Don't even think Idealism, about it. don't even. Get out of here. <laughs> um, neutral monism, can't even make sense of what you're saying. And then, like, physicalism, I mean, at least I'm pretty sure we all agree that that was actually <laughs> out. But, like, still, like, how could you say, like, it's either substance dualism or nothing? Like, there's no other way to explain consciousness. That's so crazy. Like, there are other ways to explain consciousness other than substance dualism. Like Etsy, Etsy store, it just says, like, substance dualism or, or GTFO. Or GTFO, or yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking askance at the second premise. Um, but also just the first premise was, it just strikes me as so obviously wrong of, like, well, if God doesn't exist, then there are no souls. It's like, well, yeah. what is substance dualism? It's the idea that... There, there's a physical world on the one hand, and then there are, there's like a mental realm, you know, a mm-hmm. mental substance. And then when the physical conditions are right, then the physical can interact with the mental, and the mental can make a difference to the physical. So it's like, you know, the one makes a difference to the other, and conversely. And then um, on the other hand, we have God doesn't exist. I don't see the connection between these two things. I really don't. Um, but apparently, I mean, like, I'm constantly told that there's some kind of connection between these things. Um, but I really don't see why it couldn't be the case that God doesn't exist and there's a physical Shut world up. and a mental world. <laughs> and these things make a difference to each other. I Like, I fail to see the contradiction. Yeah. But he says these are inconsistent. They're, like, logically inconsistent. Like, if atheism, yeah. then there are no souls. And I'm it's like, really, well, so I guess Michael Humer, who's, like, a substance dualist and an atheist, like, I guess he just hasn't noticed that he has, like, a totally yeah, incoherent... He's, he's he's he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he has a totally incoherent worldview, and he hasn't noticed it yet. So I, I hope that he uh, he sees the light someday about this. And then on top of that, it's like, oh, by the way, souls are the only way to explain consciousness. 
Yeah, that that seemed yeah that was weird. I, I there were obviously every step along the way of that argument um, had some severe problems with it, but I took it as a challenge to like give a plausible account of consciousness, give a plausible account of free will, and so I just like I just defended a, a general like reasons responsive uh, com- compatibilism, source compatibilism, and then I, I defended a, um, the kind of just. A general one of the one of the uh, family members of of uh, Russellian monism or something like these are just views that I find particularly plausible and um, he just kept on saying well you shouldn't be that way <laughs> or something to that <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm you know obviously I'm that's not exactly what he said but like it kept on being something to the effect of yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to like represent him in a way that I feel like I'm being fair, but I'm also being accurate. I feel like if I'm trying to be accurate, it sounds uncharitable. Yeah, it's <laughs> like if you just say what he said verbatim, it sounds like a straw man almost. But right. like, I don't know if I'm just so far gone down the non-physicalist like rabbit hole that like that's just how it sounds to me. But I feel like all of the plausibility of this kind of argument is imported from just social connotations and like, oh, well, look, most atheists are physicalists and most theists are not physicalists. So obviously there's some kind of connection there. It's like, no, there is no logical connection. There's no rational connection. Like I, well, I will grant that, um, okay. The Christian story is easier to make sense of if there are souls. Certainly. But like, there's no reason atheists can believe in souls. Yeah, the, the, the and there are plenty of, of Christians souls, who aren't substance dualists. Yeah, the well. probability of souls given Christianity seems high. Yeah, that's what yeah. we can agree on. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. the, like <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, this this is fine. But yeah, it's like there are some Christians, you know, like Peter Van Inwagen, who's a physicalist, and there right. are other Christians who are like panpsychists yeah. and stuff, and others who are idealists. So. You don't All have three to of those categories are, are incoherent, though. That's the, <laughs> that's the problem, and that's what Eric is trying to shine a light on. Yeah, and successfully, by the way. But, um, <laughs> and then the other thing, like you mentioned, was libertarian free will. Right, um, which, which he didn't actually give a defense of. He just said, he just said undifferentiated free will, that phrase. Mm-hmm. That's what's needed. That's what points to the soul. That's what points to God. Uh, but he didn't actually, like... I don't. I, I may, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe he did mention libertarian free will specifically, but like he didn't give a reason why only that version of free will, why that view of free will, is what makes the inference go. Yeah. No. He didn't really be. He didn't really address compatibilism. It's the same thing as like, oh well, what was his argument against moral non naturalism and moral naturalism? It's like there wasn't one. And it's like the same thing where it's like, oh, what was his argument against compatibilism? It's like there wasn't one. Right. So it, it's, it does get kind of frustrating after a point where it's like, are you just going to address like the Matt Dillahunties of the world forever and then like never engage with the guy who's across the table from you right, who like, right. you know, doesn't anyway, who has like a much more well thought out view. Um, but anyway, yeah. I, and then at one point near the end, he just he, he randomly said something about like, oh, why would we hold someone accountable for something if determinism is true and i almost yelled out i was like because they did it <laughs> like, that's why we would hold them accountable um but yeah I, I was trying to be on my best behavior i didn't even ask a question during the q a because i was like i was i was mainly just thinking about the, i was wondering the i was waiting thing. to see if you were gonna get up yeah i just couldn't do it because i i was gonna be I, I couldn't tell if I was going to be an asshole about it or not. Right, so I was right. just like, you didn't trust yourself. I didn't trust myself to get in front of the microphone. <laughs> Plus, you know, 
I'm used to being handed a microphone and being able to talk and explain myself. And mm-hmm. it's like, I feel like I'm going to start talking to him as if he and I are like right, having, right. and like, I'm supposed to just ask a question and walk away and I'm fundamentally incapable of that. <laughs> so it's like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even go up there. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to talk to him afterwards where I'm just like, man, we can believe in souls. Like there's nothing wrong, but like, I just couldn't even figure out how to say it without coming off as like a douchebag or something. So it just uh, didn't say anything. <laughs> what a weird thing to like start a conversation. Like, Dude, we can believe in souls. Yeah. I'd like there's, I would sound like a crazy person where I just corner him. I'm like, I can believe in a soul if I want to <laughs> corner him in an alley. Listen up, Eric, you can't stop me. also ended it by the way it was like a bullet point where he was like oh justin basically conceded my arguments by not addressing them in his opening statement which would be a total violation of like basic debate etiquette (laughs) if you actually like responded to his opening statement in your opening statement given Um, that his opening okay so this is because we've traded our uh, rebuttals beforehand this is the quote given that his opening has implicitly conceded my arguments we can once again conclude that therefore atheism is false Theism is true and God must exist. Is that at the beginning of the rebuttal or at the end? Rebuttal. If you go to the end, he also has a slide where it's like up, where he's like, he implicitly conceded my arguments in his opening. Well, you know, so what this is a result of, though, isn't debate etiquette in the sense of like saying, ah, you didn't respond to all my objections at the time that you were supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> um, rather, it's the result of his. Uh, misinterpretation of the definition of naturalism, right? Because he's going to say, oh, Justin is a pure physicalist. And so all of these things, uh, he's just conceded. So that's, I think, what, what's going on there. It was so funny where he's like, well, this definition of naturalism clearly implies physicalism. It's like that guy who gave that definition and then the other guy who read it off, neither of them are physicalists. Yeah. So like maybe you're going wrong somewhere. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that was, Admittedly, I'm one of the more uh, confusing aspects of this exchange for me. Um, we had began talking about this event months ago, uh, and I was explicit about how I am a non-naturalist about ethics, uh, about metaethics, and uh, that I am one of the family members of <laughs> of Russellian monism. I don't know which, but something like that. Apparently the most confusing concept uh, in history based on yeah, the response. Yeah. And so like, but like the, my point, why I was so, it, admittedly I was a bit frustrated by this uh, because I made those clear off the bat that when I gave him my opening statement, how could he have interpreted that as a way of saying, oh, everything he has said to me about his views is false and he's actually just a radical physicalist <laughs> like like shouldn't you're like okay if we grant that the interpret that the um that the definition yields two possible interpretations shouldn't you have considered what i've told you so far when you decide which one to take um and so yeah when the rebuttal came out this way when we when i received this i was 
I was pretty uh, frustrated frustrated by it. The, the part that he honed in on from the Luke Roloff's definition of naturalism, which listeners will know from my critically acclaimed episode about naturalism, <laughs> um, is that, you know, there's this one basic type of stuff and it like obeys these laws that we can discover through science. Yeah. And he was like, oh, one basic type of stuff, you say. You mean so what, physical <laughs> stuff. Well, and obviously physical is what you mean by mm-hmm. this. And it's just like, again, the guy who wrote that is not a physicalist. And the guy who's reading it to you now, not a physicalist. Yeah, but like it's like one you, basic, yeah. Ta- yeah, like he told you specifically, but it's like one basic type of stuff. Okay, well, stuff seems like an ambiguous word to me. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really mean physical. Like, there might be a reason why I didn't use the word physical <laughs> stuff. Perhaps. Um, but, yeah, and it's like, you know, um, what did Arthur Eddington say? Like, the stuff of the world is mind stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, that seems like one interpretation of what you said. Yeah. Um, there's also this other interpretation, like you mentioned, like, maybe the world is made of fundamentally proto-phenomenal stuff. And mm-hmm. when you put it together in the right way, you get phenomenal stuff. And then this is described by physics in, in terms of structure and behavior and relations right. and yeah, so the, on. The, the aspect that physics sees is the quote-unquote physical in the sense of like the billiard balls view of science, right? One, one minor, this isn't really a criticism, but I feel like in a debate setting, it can be helpful to reference Stephen Hawking just like as a name, where it's like, this view I'm describing is what Stephen Hawking said <laughs> when he, and then like you like read this quote and it's like, I don't know. I feel like people are more willing to accept stuff that they might not get right away or that sounds weird if they're like, oh, this is physics. And it's just like, oh, physics. Now I can like actually pay attention. And because if it's just philosophy, then they're like, I don't get it. This is weird. Yeah, Yeah. it was it was interesting because like when this first came out and like or when this first uh, the the conversation first began with us, um, like over email. Um, and he's asking about my view of, of, uh, like resilient monism and stuff. And I'm, I like went back and forth with him on this and I'm like trying to explain, Hey, look, it's about, you know, it, it involves this thing called structuralism about, about, uh, physics that, you know, there's, there's an aspect to the fundamental that, that we're blind to essentially, mm-hmm. and that we can infer it plausibly from the fact that it seems obvious that <laughs> consciousness exists. And I sent him like the IEP um, article on Russellian monism and stuff. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to like beat a dead horse here, uh, but like, yeah, that was really frustrating. Like, I feel like that was a missed opportunity of a much more engaging debate. Yeah. Especially since he presents himself as like the philosophy of mind apologist. And it's like, well, you know, you should be maybe more prepared to engage with philosophy of mind on a more substantive level. Yeah, I'm like, like, I'm like a brand new baby, like with <laughs> philosophy of mind. <laughs> but like, like, yeah, I, I don't go around advertising that I'm a philosophy of mind guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was fairly frustrated with that. Where he was trying to learn from you, like he wanted you to like explain Rosalian monism, and then it's still he was just asking weird, malformed questions. Yeah. That was another thing that we talked about briefly after the debate, where it was like. Some of the questions you got during the Q&A, not to skip ahead, skip ahead, but some of the questions Eric asked and some of the questions during the Q&A just seemed like badly formed questions. And you would try to interpret them charitably and mm-hmm. then respond to them. And then they would just kind of restate the bad question. <laughs> it's like, can't you see I'm trying to answer that? Like, but yeah. Uh, yeah, but you were too nice to be like, that's a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, so moving along to uh, 
Okay, so I have written here, if atheism, then no consciousness and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I have, in all caps, amazing placement of ellipses on the Dawkins quote. <laughs> so um, here's the quote that Eric Hernandez referenced uh, to prove his point. Well, to be um, fair, I was, I was uh, in my evolutionary argument from evolutionary evils, I quoted Dawkins. Because mm-hmm. Dawkins actually has this fantastic quote where yeah, he kind yeah. of um, gives like the essentially the argument that I wanted to give, but he just does it in a very eloquent way. Um, talking about how like it's part of the nature of the natural world that, uh, you know, that suffering is going to occur and that any kind of like momentary relief of like, you know, in the form of like easily accessible resources by everyone mm-hmm. Abundance, is going yeah. to eventually lead to an increase in reproduction and just mm-hmm. necessarily back to uh, the misery for everyone. And so it's a beautiful quote. It's like, I mean, it's a, it's a horrifying quote, but it's a really like effective quote in a debate setting. Let me just read the full quote first. So, um, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So here's Eric's version of that quote. The universe we observe has dot 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 no evil. <laughs> so, okay, that's that's a very slight exaggeration. It wasn't just okay. The universe we observe has dot 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 no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. So it's like it feels. Like, It feels like slightly different points being made here. So Dawkins' actual point is basically just a statement of the hypothesis of indifference, where it's like, at bottom, kind of a crucial part there, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect, so the predictions here, if there's at bottom no design and no good and evil, like no, you know, nothing but indifference to good and evil and all that stuff. He doesn't say there is no evil, there is no good. He just right. says, like, at bottom, there's, like, there's nothing but indifference to all these things. Yeah. And so to clarify, like, when I give that quote in support of my argument, in his rebuttal, he replies and says, ah, but don't you know that Dawkins says this in that very In this same very book. same book. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, like, the, the dialectical context that we need to be focusing on. Um, it's like, look, man, if you want a straw man atheist, then just quote Alex Rosenberg, okay? Like, just quote right. the, the Atheist Guide to Reality or whatever that book is. Yeah, because, like, just quote Alex Rosenberg, quote Michael Ruse. Like, you don't need to misquote Dawkins, of all people. Like, but yeah, that was just so funny to me, where Dawkins is giving this totally unobjectionable statement of the hypothesis of indifference. And then he's just like, well, according to Dawkins... There's no, nothing is bad. <laughs> like, like, I don't think that was his point. <laughs> um, so hiddenness, I was kind of like, thanks, Jamie. I was hoping that, um, <laughs> Jamie pulled up the quote from there, but I was hoping there would be more dialogue on the hiddenness quote. Cause I, I, I yeah. thought you gave like a really compelling, uh, like presentation of the argument from hiddenness where it's like, look, some of us lost our faith against our will mm-hmm. and which is by the way is contrary to something that Eric said. Eric just randomly said something about that implied doxastic voluntarism where he's like, "Oh well, yeah, imagine if Justin yeah. like used his libertarian free will to choose to see Stop that my arguments were good." Things. And I'm just like, 
that of all the things you could have said, like you could do libertarianly yeah. choose I, to see arguments as valid and were sound. Were you like, like being funny or did, did he actually say that? No, he did. Okay. I made a note somewhere where he said um, something like, you know, like what if Justin chooses to believe that I won or something like that? Like it was a yeah. throwaway comment during, I think maybe his opening. Sure. Based on the placement of my notes here. But yeah. But anyway, it sounded like he just very casually said something that implied voluntarism. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. In, in fact, that was the voluntarism thing. So you remember back to the argument from rationality where he says, uh, you know, that something is if something is determined, it cannot also be rational. Um, <clears throat> my third prong response to that was going to, well, you know, I bring up the computer and then someone says the computer is designed. And then you say, well, that's dialectically irrelevant because I'm responding to this original claim uh, that a computer is a counterexample to the claim that rationality cannot can be consistent with a de- deterministic process. My second response to that was going to be doxastic volunteerism is false. Um, because it, like he, like his thing is always like you choose to believe. And I just found that really bizarre, but like obviously for time constraints, I just kept on having to cut things. And it did seem relevant to the hiddenness thing, at least because yeah. he, like he had three main points against the hiddenness argument and the first two were there are no non-resistant non-believers, just rephrased, basically. But anyway, the, part of why this bothered me so much, because, like, I, I'm assuming, by the way, that people who are listening to this have listened to the debate, because this is, like, supplementary. We're not, like, if you listen to this, you don't necessarily know what happened in the debate, okay? We're not giving, like, a point-by-point breakdown here. Um, but, like, he he talked about things in a way that implied, whether he meant to or not, that Basically, there are no people who lost their faith against their will, who were open to a relationship, and then they found themselves like not believing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was less than clear. There were there were three broad responses to hiddenness in his uh, rebuttal, and the first one was that like if they believed, they wouldn't want a relationship with God, which is just yeah. saying okay. Some people are resistant, mm-hmm. right? But the argument accounts for that, right? It says that there's no obligation on God's part to reveal himself to persons who are have no interest in being in a relationship with him. Um, the second one was that, like, oh, they might believe it and enter a relationship, but then, you know, leave it later on. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, my response to that is going to be something to the effect of it's it's... It's a low view of the divine if you think that, like, God is going to let someone go at the end of the day. Um, a parent does not deal with their rebellious child by <laughs> dropping them off at the, the footsteps of the fire station and driving off in the middle of the night. Like, the parent, like, recognizes their, their child's immaturity and will uh, move along with it in a way that kind of shepherds them back into a proper understanding of, their, of the parent-child relationship um, in a way that is, is you know, freedom-preserving. You don't remember that, that part of the prodigal son story where the prodigal son stopped believing in his father <laughs> for a while? Um, yeah, but it, it does feel kind of like, you know, most of his response was kind of like, you know, it, it relied a little bit on the idea that, like, like most atheists are totally resistant. And, like, that's kind of why he brought up the Nagel mm-hmm. quote, too. Um, but, yeah, I, I just thought your presentation was very compelling. Um, and I do also love that Schellenberg quote where it's like oh, there's yeah. this light, the light that's always on. Yeah. Yeah, you probably know it better than I do. Yeah, it's uh, the presence of God will be for them like a light. However much the degree of its brightness may fluctuate remains on unless they close their eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful quote. I always like, whenever I use the hiddenness argument, that's always an essential quote for that. Yeah. 
you know, and you also mentioned this quote with uh, John or Joan. Yes. Who, yeah. um, <laughs> Which I fucked up. <laughs> it's sort of, it was honestly good that you started over because yeah. it's a very powerful quote. But, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just like, yeah, how you know, if, if it's not their fault, then it's God's fault. And it's just like, yeah. if God, so God is like preventing certain people, like mm. he's preventing Paul Draper from how having a relationship. God with is him. loving John or Joan mm-hmm. uh, perfectly. If, he is, in fact, preventing John or Joan from entering a relationship yeah, with them. Yeah, he's preventing them because yeah. they're not, they're non-resistant right. non-believers. They're just and it's doing like, their thing. He's the one who's, like, responsible. Like, he's literally preventing yeah. Schellenberg and preventing Draper from, like, having a relationship with him. And it's like, it's not their fault. It's yeah. his fault. <laughs> like, yeah, and it's just, like, it does seem incompatible. Like, for all the people who get upset about this kind of premise where it's like, oh, perfect love means that he would always be open. It's yeah. just like, don't you think it's a little weird yeah. that he is the one preventing a relationship? I think they, yeah, they, they object to it. I mean, and there's not, this is not necessarily a, a uh, illegitimate move, but they, in any other context, if you tar- started to unpack the implications of what love is mm-hmm. and you increase the degree of love and you get to perfect love, yeah. you know, once you know, obviously there's going to be a point where they're like, oh, shit, I can't accept these implications. But, like, they're going to, I think the, the implications are entirely plausible on the concept of a general concept of, of perfect love. And so, yeah, I think that if they believe in God, obviously they're going to, they have to object to something, and so they're going to do that. But I, I feel like it's not motivated by a, a uh, proper understanding of, of, of love. So the open dialogue I thought was interesting because it began with this, uh, you know, kind of back and forth about physicalism, which if nothing else, it's nice just to put it out there that a lot of atheists are not physicalists. Mm -hmm. Um, Because for some reason, due to contingent historical facts, (laughs) most atheists uh, in the past few decades and currently are physicalists. And some people have kind of reified this fact in their mind to the point where they think atheism and physicalism are almost interchangeable or like one entails the other somehow. So it was just nice, at least for me as a non-physicalist who likes Thomas Nagel and Noam Chomsky and David Chalmers and all those people where it's like, okay, I'm glad that at least like it's getting through to these like, you know, churchgoers who are in the audience right now where it's just like, Hey, by the way, we're not all physicalists. Just right, thought right. maybe you should know that. Um, you know, it's yeah. equally important as like the, the landscape uh, is a bit non- more complicated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's like, we're not all moral nihilists. We're not all physicalists. Like, except, I guess that's your John stereotype, Fox. but yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I just thought, like, even though a lot of people apparently were, were not following the points about structuralism and that sort of thing, yeah. Um, which, by the way, earlier I mentioned the Stephen Hawking quote because, or, or Stephen Hawking, because he said, like, well, physics, about, physics is about these abstract equations and laws. Well, that can't be all there is. Like, there has right. to be something that breathes fire into the equations. Like, that what are we're those laws about. acting on? 
I don't need the Stephen Hawking quote in front of me. I'm, I, first of all, it's quoted in every single panpsychist book and article that's ever been published. Um, to be clear, what happened was that John had the computer and he ran up to Emerson <laughs> with the screen. We need the projector. We need the, J- the JRE projector. Where I, yeah, there it is. Shamey pull it up. <laughs> anyway, it? Do you have that video of the monkey ripping off the other one's dick? Can you pull that up? Jamie, pull that up. Pull that. <laughs> But yeah, the open dialogue that I have, I only have two notes here. One says, Eric can't see how an atheist could believe these things. <laughs> um, so that I'm assuming that's about consciousness. And then yeah. the second one is just, panpsychism is theism. So this is the point where that, I like I had to bite my tongue so hard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> He's like, well, you believe consciousness is fundamental. That's basically God. <laughs> it's like, I think God has... A couple more attributes yeah, yeah. than conscious. Also, your entire <laughs> response to everything I say in this debate appeals to a, a like a full fledged like rich Christian theology. But so, if, if you're a panpsychist, which I mean, like you kept saying, like I'm kind of agnostic about this. I'm so, like, right. I'm I'm some kind of Rasalian monist, which is compatible with the thing that you keep referencing, which is panpsychism. Yeah. But like, maybe I I don't think like reality is at base conscious like that's also compatible with the view that i'm outlining mm-hmm. he's like okay so you think consciousness is fundamental and you're like maybe like i don't know why like you said it like five times right, and i'm like right. dude he's not affirming that view he's just saying that it's compatible with the broader view that he's describing mm-hmm. he's like okay well you know if you think consciousness is fundamental then like why wouldn't you just be a christian and then like the whole audience is like ah! and then starts like applauding and stuff and i'm like oh, i will kill my god <laughs> I'm just like, okay, so if you're giving an analysis of God, so if I'm taking this seriously, then your analysis of God is conscious, the end. (laughs) Like, there's no other attribute to speak of. Because the only thing. He didn't cause anything to exist. (laughs) He's just conscious. Conscious. It's just like, okay, so, and it's, he's not even like, a person there's just consciousness involved in fundamental reality that's all god is apparently it's not one person from whom like for where all reality comes from it's it's not an omnipotent omniscient omnibenevolent person who's also omnipresent and like you know cares about everyone what i want to know is how this consciousness makes sense of souls which obviously are evidence for (laughs) hand psychism There's a lot of really complicated, high-level reasoning going on here that I can, I can scarcely follow. But, yeah, just the panpsychism is theism thing. Like, I've kind of, you know, cheekily said before, like, oh, people act like the idea that consciousness is fundamental is very counterintuitive. But actually, most people believe consciousness is fundamental. Like, I've kind of said that before, but it's like, there are other divine attributes. And by the yeah, way, some yeah. theists don't even think that God should be characterized as a conscious being or right. a conscious person or whatever. Um, but yeah, there was just that one like rhetorical point about like, well, you're a panpsychist, even though you're not. And it's like, so you should be a Christian. And it was just like, it was so annoying to me because it's like, he has repeatedly said to you that he is not a panpsychist, um, just that it's consistent with his broader view. Mm-hmm. And secondly, um, you know, God involves more things than just being conscious and he didn't say, oh, you should be a theist. He said, oh, you should be a Christian, which is even more far removed. I know, I know. I thought that was about. funny, too. I was like, you know, it, like I said, the debate was supposed to be just theism, naturalism. Like, this claim would have been n- still quite un- implausible, <laughs> but much less implausible than if he just said, 
well, then why don't you just become a theist? Yeah, just be a theist. There's already like, okay, like, cool. I'll become made, a very non-standard version yeah. of theism. Yeah, no, he, there's a way to even make this purely rhetorical point that he was making in a way that wasn't so stupid. Like he could have just been like, well, there are these people who think that consciousness is fundamental. It's a very traditional view called theism. Like he could have made the same kind of rhetorical point without yeah. just like without just being so wrong. He essentially anyway. said, "Oh, you're potentially a panpsychist." Well, why don't you just believe in the death and resurrection of our Savior? (laughs) 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 Like, why don't you believe that? Like, that does not follow? Yeah, and then everyone is just like, whoa! (laughs) All the windows exploded. (laughs) All the the beautiful alabaster windows um, (laughs) were broken. That's the thing I learned today, by the way. And just a quick shout out to Lanier. Yeah, linear. Linear. linear yeah, p- um, I don't know how it's pronounced. Theological library, beautiful place. Amazing place. It's so beautiful. Like just walking around today, they have. Um, okay, do I have this wrong? They have the jar that the Dead Sea Scrolls came out of. No, 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 no. So they have a. I don't. I. It, it was not clear to me. Uh, because a number of the things were just replicas. I looked at a things. jar today. Right. <laughs> what so was that jar? The jar was either a replica of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, jars from the caves of the Qumran community, or it was, in fact, a real jar of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think that community. was a real jar, but it was, yeah. a, it was a replica of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But it, what the director of the okay. place told me was that it was a forgery level replica and there are only like seven of them in the world i thought that was such a weird um, like brag (laughs) like like, we have a forgery level replica and there are only probably get some money for this (laughs) we could probably uh you know fool some folks (laughs) yeah it was really cool they had some like actual real um handwriting of c.s lewis there and like some old like Writings of his where the, he's like scratching things out and like editing in in real time. It was, it was he, super cool to he see. He asked me, yeah, yeah. That was I was spending a lot of time looking at those C.S. Lewis things under the glass case because it's like a seven page. I feel like it was something under wartime. Do you remember the title of it? it was I like don't, I don't. Something under wartime. I mean, it's been published a few. Yeah, in apparently a few it's a places. famous essay of his. Um, he gave. He, it's an address he gave right at the beginning of World War Two. And, um, but yeah, it was just so interesting to like see his handwriting and then see him like cross something out and like change it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that the actual published version is actually different from the one that we saw, like mm-hmm. the, the draft that we saw. So yeah, it's just super like cool the, for like, like, uh, like textual archaeology almost. Yeah. That's what he mentioned. He's like, those people would go crazy for this because you can see what he originally wrote Mm -hmm. and there'd be a line where he's like, no, I don't. And then he would cross it out, but you can still see what he wrote and then he replaced it with something else. So it would just be really interesting to like reverse engineer that thought process of where he was like, that's not exactly right, but this is better. And also just minor note, C.S. Lewis has very tiny handwriting. Yeah. He must have had weird. like he must have had like <clears throat> eagle eyes or something because like or just he was very small hands. <laughs> <laughs> he had very small hands or very, very sharp eyes. Because he must have been like I, I can't remember when he was born, but I feel like it was the in the eighteen hundreds, right? Yeah, probably late eighteen hundreds. So it's like he had he had much better eyesight than I have right now. Yeah. Because that, that handwriting was hands. very small. <laughs> he had very he, if he could read that, because I had to get 
I had to get my face like yeah, right yeah, next yeah. to it to even read what he was saying. I like think about standing on a podium in front of a bunch of people right. and you have that and tiny reading little that? handwriting. Yeah, that's wild. I couldn't stop thinking about that. But anyway, uh yeah, it, it was just cool some of the some of the, like the artifacts they had there. Um and just the campus is like incredibly beautiful mm-hmm. and it's a private library so they have all these eyes wide shut gates around the entire thing but like we couldn't get in at first it took us a while to even get inside of it um, but there were like big fat rabbits hanging around like stray cats dude those really those rabbits were unusually fuzzy those are the fuzziest <laughs> rabbits i've ever seen in my life um but yeah very friendly ra- we walked right up to the ra- does there was know, rabbit does anyone know that these rabbits are this fuzzy <laughs> is anyone going to call anyone about that <laughs> jesus someone call richard dawkins allowed? to analyze these rabbits <laughs> yeah so they're these very friendly semi-domesticated rabbits that are like running but we walked right up to them because it was so hot they were just like trying to cool off and like yeah. they didn't care yeah we, were, we also i also got like about a foot away from a duck that was just like kind of like sitting there, no, like dude, hiding in the shade. Those weren't real ducks. <laughs> I took a picture of it. It was a real duck. <laughs> I also, I mean, I have to get to the bottom of this whole jar situation um, because I told my wife that I, I called her and said, oh, I saw the jar that the Dead Sea Scrolls came out of. And she doesn't listen to my podcast, so she'll never find out if it's not true. But I do want to find out <laughs> if that was a real thing. But um also, yeah. like the Dead Sea Scrolls are like a collection of tiny scrolls that were found in like a handful of jars in a cave on the coast of the Dead Sea. There's like a bunch of caves, a bunch of scrolls. So like it would have been one jar. One Maybe jar. it had a Dead Sea Scroll in it, but it would have right. been of that community. Well, I hope it was one of the jars that was actually, you know, it was a real jar. Yeah. No one can take it away from me today that I saw a jar. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare tell me. <laughs> Don't that tell I did me I not see a jar. <laughs> Do you, am I supposed to read this article that you just pulled up yeah, about the Qumran scrolls jar? Oh yeah, yeah, this is what I saw today. I've never seen uh, John jump so quickly over a bed with a with a laptop Dude, with okay, an article about a jar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's an authentic jar, okay? It's an authentic Dead Sea Scrolls jar. Um yeah, no. So I saw the real thing today. So I, I did not uh, mislead my wife. The, the other stuff. This is the, the yeah. Writing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is this is it. Yeah. Well, there you have it. The Qumran scrolls jar, everybody. <laughs> um, and then we we also weren't allowed to take pictures of the replica of the Dead Sea Scroll that we looked not at. Not professionally. Oh yeah, yeah. He said. Oh yeah. I wanted to mention because I I was like, can I take pictures of the CS? He's Lewis like, thing? don't be good at it. <laughs> He was like, they can't, yeah, he basically said, like, they have to be from far away, kind of. But he was also like, uh, they can't be for profit. So I almost want to, like, just post the picture that I took of the C.S. Lewis letters to Patreon and then charge for this post. Like, (laughs) check the box that says charge for this post and just be like, fuck you. (laughs) It's like, no, I'm making money off of this photo that I took. Come and get me now. (laughs) I almost want to do that where it's like, I'm not going to charge for the episode, like this episode that we're recording, but I am going to post the picture and then charge for the picture. Just like to... Immediately after. (laughs) I'm breaking the law. It's just like, oh, are you going to go to to the Capturing Christianity conference? Like, I can't go to Texas, man. I got a warrant out for me. I I took a picture of the C.S. Lewis thing and for profit. Um, For profit, no less. Oh, shit. Also, Cameron mentioned that the, the conference in August might be at that same place. 
because the church that they normally have it at is like under construction or something. So maybe the conference will also be at the uh, library that we were at today. Anyway, you should go to the conference because it's, it's uh, like this, but there are like 10 more people who you would know and want to talk to <laughs> who are at the thing. The more people I know and want to talk to, the better. <laughs> like the group chat, like there are more people from that. Yeah. Wait, what'd you, what about Rasmussen? Rasmussen was there. Josh Rasmussen mm. was there. So like, Not last time. Yeah, yeah. He was at the first one, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Not yeah, the yeah. second one. Not the one I went to. He was afraid to get his world. Were you able to take pictures of Josh Rasmussen for profit? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not allowed. He's too tall. Um, That's right, yeah. So anyway, there were, I mean, like, I thought the, personally, I thought the openings were, were interesting. And then, um, I, I thought the Q and A was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, there was one question during the Q and A that was Mm -hmm. just like, why do you think there isn't more agreement about God's existence or something like that? Or like, why do you think oh, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. so why much do you think there's so much? Why do you think it's so hard for people to like yeah. come yeah. to agreement on these questions? And it's like, well, cause the world is ambiguous about like yeah. the, the world is totally religiously ambiguous. That's why there's so much disagreement. It's not like, Oh, well there's one obviously right answer and everyone else is either an idiot or suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's like, yeah. no, the world is just genuinely ambiguous. Yeah. And there are lots of positions that are, reasonable to hold given people's position on the epistemic landscape but it's like i mean that itself to me is some evidence against at least certain forms of theism where it's just like you know the turner burn kind of theism where it's like you have to accept the right propositions or which by the way eric hernandez just you know very very cool at the end was just like Justin's going to hell forever. <laughs> Justin's going to hell forever, and I hope he doesn't, but he will if he doesn't change. To. And someone was just like, well, do you think he'll have another chance Like once he's in hell? And he know- he's like, oh, damn, I was totally wrong. And Eric's like, no, <laughs> you're just going to be in hell forever, um, and you'll never get another chance. Uh, yeah, that's another part I like about the prodigal son stories, when the prodigal son tries to return, and then the father is just like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Um, fucking chase him with a hot poker. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole religious ambiguity point is at least some evidence for like, you know, naturalism, where it's yeah. like, oh well, if religious if religious beliefs are like culturally determined, like the clothes you wear or the food you eat or whatever, it's like, yeah, this is kind of what you would expect. Whereas, yeah. if there's some objective fact of the matter, you know, well. You know, in in many areas where there's an objective fact of the matter, there's some kind of convergence. And in those areas, there's not a conscious omnipotent being who's desperately trying to tell you the right answer. Yeah. So that's one minor difference. And then it's like, I mean, for me, my mind always immediately goes to like the soteriological things where it's just like, you know, if you get the wrong answer about Platonism, like reasonable people can disagree about Platonism. And then it's like, if you get the wrong answer, it basically doesn't matter. But it's like, if you get the wrong answer about Christianity, at least according to Eric, you're going to be like tortured forever. Yeah. And it's like, that seems like a relevant difference. That seems like a weird (laughs) thing to believe. (laughs) Like, you know, this kind of ambiguity is a little surprising on a view like that, where it's like, you're going to be tortured forever. If you get the wrong answer, it's like, well, if, if there's a being who's like omnipotent, omniscient and perfectly loving, maybe he would make it clearer what the right answer is. I mean, we, we've kind of trekked through this debate and um, debunked theism, um, but 
you know, you kind of mentioned that you were hoping this debate would like help relay theology reach a bit of a wider audience than um, just philosophy of religion nerds like myself and yeah. John. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess because it has been kind of not regularly releasing for a while, and so it was kind of like, <laughs> wait, am I throwing my shit under the bus right now? No, it's just so, this is like an ongoing joke where it's like, because you only recently returned, and like, yeah. for the longest time, I've been like telling August and Ben, I'm like, so when's your annual episode coming out for Relay Theology? And it was just so funny because it's like, you know, you came back, and then two seconds later, it was just like, and now there's a monthly episode again, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to the uh, yearly it was, it was episode. An episode every two <laughs> weeks since January first, and this it was supposed to be an episode on Thursday or Friday this mm-hmm. past week, and it, it did not happen because I was too fucking stressed. I thought I was going to get my ass handed to me for this debate. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is just funny how there was like it was so few and far like <laughs> very infrequently <laughs> releasing episodes. <laughs> I mean, we. Look, they tweeted a shit ton, right? There was a lot of tweets, okay? There were about 10,000 tweets. 5,000 of them were pro-Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> from our good buddy who uh, who really has more knowledge about Catholicism than at least half of Catholics do. <laughs> Shout out to August, uh, the realist. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> What's usable for the- <laughs> <laughs> this? Is gonna be like a three-minute-long episode. <laughs> We've kind of debriefed the debate. Like I said, if if listeners have not heard the debate, then you should listen to it because we're just. This is like a couple hours yeah, after the make debate sure you happened. See that at the very end of the episode, you should. <laughs> now that you've now that we're uh, well over an hour into this, um, yeah, no, you should listen to the debate uh, happened over at Capturing Christianity. Uh, shout out to Cameron and Brittany for organizing this cool thing between um, Justin Schieber and Eric Hernandez. But yeah, if you haven't heard the debate, then you should listen to it because we're not we're not even trying to like recap it and like give you all the information. We're just kind of you know debriefing. You've been debriefed. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was was some dumb shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got to the bottom of that one. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll see you fucking idiots next time. (laughs) So... I've been. You've been like. I have. I am no longer. Are you saying that I'm wrong? That I haven't been Emerson? I have, in fact, been Emerson Green. (laughs) No one can take that away from me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, this has been Reasonable Doubts. Um, (laughs) We're back, baby. We're back. Um, Dave has left. Dave has abandoned his 24 children. Uh, Luke is no longer teaching at the university. He's with uh, his cats. <laughs> Jeremy has decided that Buddhism is fake. And um, Justin is uh, uh, an Eric Hernandez style Christian now. Um, so I'm taking the reins here at Reasonable Doubts. <laughs> there hasn't been an episode yeah, in Emerson's eight years. about to play the guitar. <laughs> and this is stranger than fiction. Um <laughs> Yeah, so for the for the four mm-hmm. listeners who also listen to Reasonable Doubts, this is really great what? for them. You know, like at least eight. I have been surprised by how few people know about Reasonable Doubts because it was a very popular podcast. And I feel like early on, yeah. A lot of the people who listened to it 
have basically just moved on to other stuff in their life, you know? Yeah. And then, like, the Three younger, <laughs> including all of the hosts. Well, some of them just feel, <laughs> for whatever reason, like, they can't leave it. <laughs> yeah, no, same with me. It's, like, these kind of <clears throat> topics, like, they kind of grab hold of you and they just yeah. don't let go. And then some people occasionally are just, like, why are you enough. still talking about God? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, look, I don't know. <laughs> I can't oh. help it. <laughs> um, That's evidence for God. Yeah. Really, at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, check out Reasonable Doubts, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> New episodes every Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I mean, obviously everyone listening knows what Relay Theology is. But, uh, yeah, subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel. Our producer, John Buck, has a YouTube channel. Um, you can also see his appearances on uh, this YouTube channel slash podcast. But, yeah, thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I will talk to you next time.